0: Hi everybody, you to the Rope Podcast with Fox from Maya. Thanks for supporting the show.
1: This is a show with adult content, so if you're not of legal age where you live, then turn off now.
0: This podcast is about rope bondage. Rope bondage is edge play with inherent risk, and we strongly recommend you get proper training and listen to episode 0 before attempting it. Find it at the top of our Fat Life page, Rope Podcast.
1: Fox is a rigger and Maya is a bottom. We're rope partners and have been for a bit more than three years now, and we're very excited to share our passion for Rup with you from our beautiful home in Thailand.
0: And today we're thrilled to have an interview with fellow podcaster Fabiola La the creator and narrator of the Kinbaku Nomicon, which is yes, difficult Maya. for me to pronounce. Kinbaku
1: <laughs> You haven't read enough fluffcraft oh, yet. It's
0: such a show-off. You ESL, um, an informational podcast which is about the historical traditions and foundations of Kinbaku. Uh, Faviola has translated for Bondage Artist Kasumi Horai's official website and for NoahPedia and has presented at Bondage Expo Dallas. She's also a founding member of the Double Mask Society. Fabiola's main interest is in tracing the development of torture, eroticism, sadomasochism and censorship represented in Japanese media from pre-modern times to today, as well as it, uh, as well as understanding
2: its impact on early SM in Japan.
1: Welcome and thanks for joining us, Faviola.
2: Hi, thank you. I love Hi. your podcast. This is going to be fun.
1: Well, we love your podcast too. I think I we must do. have listened to every episode you've put out. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Um, all right, let's get to it. So, Faviola, where did your interest in rope begin?
2: I think it started like about my last year in high school. Um, I was looking through some of my friends' uh, comic books and they had this Japanese comic that had some you know, rope bondage in it. And I thought it was interesting like really interesting. So um I got lucky that this that summer, um, I have this uh used bookstore that's near my house that just happened to have boxes of Japanese magazines in the back. So I spent that summer like digging through them, finding anything I could on bondage. And I found some stuff but I couldn't read it. Mm-hmm. So I decided that I'd start taking Japanese classes. Wow. <laughs> so Everything awesome. for me, like, like revolves around that and my interest in rope. Um, But I wasn't really wasn't interested in who was who or what was going on. Like, I just wanted to know what people were saying about it and thinking about it. So I just kind of, like, with rope bondage, fumbled around with boyfriends. And, you know, I think they more, like, humored me more than anything else
3: uh-huh.
2: about it. And I really didn't start getting serious about it until I started meeting other people who were interested in rope bondage, you know, in particular, um, Master K, who I worked for for several years as an assistant and one of the students. So, and that kind of started the whole process of, like, my whole, like, involvement and investment and stuff in rope.
1: So you actually learned how to read and speak the Japanese language for the purpose of understanding more about rope. Yes. (laughs) That's absolutely amazing. I
0: did not expect that, and that's amazing, yep. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I. I mean, is like as far as Japan goes. I mean, I've never really had any more or less interest in it than any other country, right? But learning Mm -hmm. a language, you kind of learn how people live, and that's always interesting. I love hearing about how people think and how they like organize their lives and stuff. But um, yeah, it's it's all been about the rope.
1: Mm -hmm. Have you spent time in Japan itself?
2: No. I I don't like large numbers of people, you know, despite living in Los Angeles. Um so I've been kind of reluctant to go. Mhm. So mostly what I do is, you know, communicate through email or talking and stuff like that with people. That's amazing.
0: Okay. <laughs> and so so how does that translate to your interest in rope? Um, currently, so your personal interest, like do you top, do you bottom, what's your, what kind of rope do you enjoy at the moment?
2: Okay, I am, I am a top, um, I started as a bottom, and I never thought I would ever be a top, but one day a switch flipped in my head, and it just went the other way, <laughs> so um, but my, mo- my main interest in rope bondage is torment, pain, sex, fear, and how they all get mixed up together erotically. I can okay, get super. behind that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and how, how has your own role practice evolved over time? So, like, how how did you learn to bottom? How did you learn to top? Like, where did that kind of um, practical side come from for you?
2: Um, the practical side was mostly fumbling around. And then once I started to get like serious and, like, learn how to do it, Um, I started to realize that there's, like, endless possibilities with rope, right? Mm -hmm. And that Japanese rope itself was an ever-adapting and changing process, you know? So, and I'm a bit of an obsessive, so I just wanted to learn anything and everything I could.
1: I'm curious, uh, Fabiola, how the reality of actually getting into doing rope compared for you to what your thoughts were when you first saw those magazines?
3: Ah uh, parts
2: of it are the same, and parts of it are extremely different um id oh, what drew me to like the Japanese style of of bondage was when I saw somebody tied up, it didn't look like the kind of their their expressions and their looks didn't look like defiant or kind of the come hither look.
3: Mm-hmm. It didn't
2: look pleasurable mm-hmm. in that sense, but it looked erotic. it looked passionate. And in that sense, that hasn't changed. But more in the sense of what the possibilities are as far as ideas and fetishes and um, concepts and stories and all the kinds of things that go around the practice and all the different techniques. That is like light years away from where I started.
1: Mm. Uh, So obviously your interest very much started on the Japanese side of things. In your rope today, do you only practice traditional Japanese-style shibari, or do you also borrow from other inspirations for rope?
2: Um, Personally, I've, I've been going my own way mm-hmm. on that. Um, I got this idea that, like, back in the early years, there was like this Cambrian explosion of ideas. Mm-hmm. People were like, throwing just anything and everything out from any kind of thing that caught their interest. But a lot of it kind of faded out over time, you know, as kind of the activity developed. And I thought it would be fun to take, like, those ideas that never made it, or that only exist now in little bits and pieces, and see what would have happened if they were pursued. It's, like, followed up.
3: Oh, I love that.
1: And so I've been
2: kind of, like, trying can to, you think give us, how to do that. Can you give us an example? Sure. Like, um, examples of Like probably the most um, common tie, right? The hands behind tie, the box tie. There were other approaches of how to do it with tying the wrists separately. Um, Just tying the upper arms, not tying around the body. Um, Certain ways of wrapping that went around upper arms and the upper body. How it went up and over the shoulders. Just different types of, at least as far as patterns are concerned. And the different approaches, like there are different ways of doing like um, what's called like a prawn tie. Mm -hmm. where the legs are crossed and the body's pulled down. There are different versions of doing that, like tying the upper body just to the upper legs. Oh. And, I mean, different ideas and approaches, different ways of adding pieces together, lifting certain limbs up in the air, and just crazy amounts of different things that um, I just try to play with
1: that's super interesting what it seems to me is because you have access to those materials and you've taught yourself or you have learned in some way how to read and exploit them you have access actually to a much bigger picture of what japanese rope is whereas i guess some people who like japanese rope have a very reductive understanding of what it can be because they've only seen this type of tk Uh, they've only seen what's popular at a certain period in time whereas I guess you have the ability to go back much further in time and then get a much broader view of what Japanese rope has been.
2: Yeah, the, the, the bottleneck is so frustrating. I mean, the activity itself is so wide and broad and crazy with ideas and, like, opportunities to try things. And only so little seems to get across into other languages. Like It's primarily English because I only follow it in Japanese and English. Mm-hmm. Um that I would love for people to, to be more exposed to just all the other opportunities and all the different, um, particularly fetishes that go along with the play and ideas and just patterns and concepts and, and stuff that I think would really empower people.
1: What sort of fetishes do you think uh, are interesting and less understood?
2: There's there's a whole lot of, I mean, not, it's not something I'm personally interested in, but there's like mm-hmm. a whole lot of types of, medical and body type of play that just seems kind of invisible um, on the English side. There's the sadomasochistic, erotic sadomasochistic aspect of the activity I find really fascinating. And in English, it tends to be kind of separated out into kind of a specialty um, Mm -hmm. activity like semenawa Mm
3: -hmm.
2: instead of, being along a spectrum, a continuum, it's like the entire like language around, you know, SM and SM. Just calling it SM play.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, it's all about you know Satanism and masochism, and I think some of that really gets toned down or lost or, you know, in in that translation.
0: Yeah. Okay. Because people are very much into rope as a specific thing, and rope is almost was full of in fact purists who often just just focus on the rope. Whereas you're saying that there's that actually that's not
2: that's only taking it in, in one kind of aspect. Right. It's one aspect of a much larger one. Like there are certain people who are like definitely rope fetishists, right? Mm-hmm. And you can tell someone's a rope fetishist and like what kind of play they do and like how they use rope, you know, or the different types of aspects of play that they might do versus someone who may use additional like equipment and, and objects.
1: Hey guys, this is Fox coming in for a short break. We really love making this rope podcast and sharing it with you. Sadly, hosting a podcast isn't free. Far from it, actually. So if you like this podcast and you want to support us, you can do so at ropepodcast.com. you find ways to buy rope stuff so that we get a cut from your purchases and also ways to donate to us directly. And if you can't afford to do that, that's okay too. Just enjoy the podcast now back to our normal programming.
0: Okay, so that leads on um, to, I guess, why you started the podcast itself. So so what was your kind of initial reasoning for um, doing that work? Because it must be a huge amount of work for you. It, it certainly, <laughs> certainly sounds like it.
2: Yeah, it is it's way more than one person can do. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the Kampakonomicon is the current incarnation of a project I've been playing around with for years. And then I've been able to put out bits and pieces of. And so the podcast itself is just one part of the Convaconomicon project for me. You know, doing, putting up the translations on the website is like another part of it. Um,
1: Does that mean there'll be basic... a movie in theaters soon?
2: <laughs> if I could do that, that would be wonderful.
1: <laughs> I mean, you do it in Hollywood,
2: so. Yeah, i go see that. <laughs> I was like... The basic like idea of the project was like to create a bridge between Japan and like the English-speaking world mm-hmm. to try to get the information out to as many people as possible and to try to get Japanese Kingsters kind of more active in the conversation like in the global rope community and so how
0: did you decide on the topics like how did you decide what to cover in the different episodes
2: um, I tried to cover as many different aspects of the activity as I can, especially anything that kind of touches on the received wisdom we have about what Japanese bondage is.
0: And what's been most popular? So in terms of the response to the podcast, what have people kind of given most feedback on, or what has been most controversial? What's kind of really
2: engaged people? Um, like Numbers-wise, this last one on Takate Kote mm. is like, by far, two yeah. to three times, like more we'll than anything else. Um, okay. But as far as feedback from people, it's been the five shibari myths.
1: Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that one in a little bit because we also <laughs> uh, we we also um, grabbed onto that episode and found it super interesting. Uh, so how do you build up your uh, your knowledge? So you talked about the early magazines and then what kind of material and what kind of uh, source of information have you gone after to build up on that?
2: Oh, it's, um, it's just endless trudging. Um, it's like I'll be interested in one thing, like let's say a particular story. I'll find the author. That author will lead me to other stories and other stories by other authors, which will lead me into some kind of like social phenomenon and I'll follow that phenomenon, which will lead me into censorship, which may lead me into different media like newspapers or magazines or movies or cartoons. And it's just been a process of just following everything in as much as I can, just around and around and around. And then I'll come across like something maybe in somebody's blog or something somebody says, and it'll spark some other idea on some other thing I've been following, which leads me into another direction. The kind of the things I pull from is everywhere and anything I can I can get a hold of.
0: So you sound quite um a deep researcher. Like, how do you decide when an episode is ready? Because you could go because the research could be infinite. I I think.
2: Yeah, it's.
0: I always feel like I'm never ready. But if, I was just gonna say you sound like <laughs> a bit of a perfectionist. So how do you make sure that you get? And I the, thought I had it up?
1: bad with Maya. With <laughs> been trying to get this issue our episode recorded for like six months now because she said the research is not done. So, but you seem even worse, potentially, <laughs> Fabiola.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's always something new, you know, or always something that goes, oh, I didn't think about that that way before. So, I mean, I just have to kind of like the point where it says, well, okay, I think I have enough evidence on this particular thing that I feel comfortable talking about it and I can show my reasonings and like show my homework about how I got to my, my conclusions and my thoughts and, like, to share that with everyone listening so that they could see where I'm coming from. And they can decide for themselves, like, whether they feel I've added things together the right way. And it's, okay, like, at that point, I feel that I've kind of – I have an episode.
0: And what's been the most – the biggest surprise in, in all the research that you've done for
2: you? Ooh, um – the biggest surprise is if it's okay to talk about the subject is prostitution's role in the development of Shibari, it's both It's very ideas okay and... to
1: talk about. <laughs> okay.
2: Good. Yeah. Cause I mean, there's, there's a lot of intersection between it and kind of the SM industry and the different ideas floating around um, this type of bondage. How do the two connect? Okay. Like I started like, a tie and kind of start moving outward from it if if that's okay Mm
3: -hmm.
2: um okay there's there's this tie called the beast tie or it's also known as the tanuki tie and it's a form of bondage where a person's wrists and ankles are tied together and then they're lifted up by you know all four limbs so the limbs are in front and it comes from two different ideas of tying one is how hunters would tie game animals to poles to carry them. And the other was a particular type of torture and punishment that was used in the red light districts in the brothels. And the way it was used in the brothels was that the person would be tied up in this way, suspended in the air. It would twist the person around and around to tighten up the rope and then let it relax and spin in the other direction. And as the person spin, spun, um, one or more people would start beating on the prostitute with you know, poles and canes. And it was said by, particularly, ya- Nawa Yumio in his book, um, The History of Japanese Torture and Punishment, that this punishment and torture was rarely seen outside the red light district. And it was also seen as something that was particularly carried out by women because it was thought of that the men would be too soft on prostitutes. Right. So usually an older woman or an older female manage, manager would take care of that um, torture. Now, there are other tortures and punishments that prostitutes went through in the red light district, um, particularly one, if they tried to run away, they may be tied out front of the brothel to show everybody that this person tried to run away or this person stole from a client. It would be other types of um, punishments for you know various infractions, and these types of ideas made their way into mass media. In particular, there's this one play called Akegarasu, which tells the story of the prostitute Urasato. As she's trying to escape from the brothel with her lover, she's caught and tied to a tree outside the brothel in the snow. And kind of the, the artists of back in the day would often depict this play in, in that scene as you know the lover's trying to climb the fence to rescue her and she's, you know, suffering there. And, like, one of the little attendants is trying to give her water as she's tied up and stuff. And Ito Seu, who was um, later in the early 20th century, was a pioneer in looking into erotic torment. And he was viewed as kind of one of these starting figures in the development of erotic bondage as SM play, like what we're doing right now. And he told a number of different versions of the way prostitutes were um, tied up and tortured as well. In fiction, like, there's a story, Flower and Snake, which is a really super famous SM Mm -hmm. story, which is telling the story of how a woman's husband got in deep with the mafia, and so she was taken in exchange for the money, right, and put Mm -hmm. through various things. That's also built on another trope in Japanese stories where If the husband got in debt, he'd sell his wife into slavery in the brothels, right, to pay off that debt. Mm -hmm. And that's made its way into various stories. Like, there's this cartoon, uh, Samurai Chambleau, which dedicates a whole episode to that kind of storyline. And, of course, Flower and Snake and a whole bunch of other SM videos and, like, softcore movies, like, are built on this theme. And even in the early years of, um, of Shibari, right, as SM... People would talk about, like, these fantasy role-play scenarios of tying up a prostitute and stuff. Even today, you know, you have the professional side of this activity is, you know, the SM industry, which is hooked into, you know, adult videos and mistresses and happening bars and all kinds of things. And um, so there's this connection and flowing back and forth between people working in the various aspects you know, of, of the professional side of this activity. Mm-hmm. And there's one SM model, kind of a well-known one, named uh, Hiromi Sautome, who's written a number of books on SM. And one of her books is about sex workers in the industry. Reminding me of this, like, this kind of side note, it's kind of dark. But mm-hmm. We, like,
1: like, we like dark.
2: In the early 1800s, like around 1810-ish, there was a samurai in uh, Tokyo, Edo, who's known as a buyu Inchi who um, wrote this kind of tirade about modern Japanese society at that time and everything that was wrong with it. Mm -hmm. And he talked about um, the red light district. And he not only mentioned that beast high that I talked about earlier, but he talked about one of the ways prostitutes was dealt with um, when they died. Um, Occasionally prostitutes would kill themselves, you know, Mm -hmm. out of you know try to escape if they couldn't escape they were maybe tortured to death or punished to death um and so what they would do with the bodies is they would take it out someplace either to some out of the way cemetery or just in a hole in the ground tie them up in like a straw mat dump them and dump them in the earth bury them as kind of a a protection so that their spirit didn't come out and try to curse the brothel mm mm-hmm. And, you know, Buoyuanchi is saying that, you know, these prostitutes were treated, you know, worse than dogs. And it's just like this way that now when we think about, you know, Yoshiwara, you know, Red Light District and Edo and Geisha and prostitutes, how sanitized it is now, how much it's become part of kind of its own kind of fetishized, idealized vision of it as Mm -hmm. opposed to like what the reality it was at that time. Which in a way is a really great reflection of what our activity is now today because it is sanitized, idealized, fantasized versions of bondage that were carried out in various aspects of life that had been going on in Japan throughout the years.
1: That's fascinating. That's fascinating. <laughs> I, I love these kind of insights of that you can bring of separating separating the myth. And the reality. And so speaking of that, let's come back to your uh, Shibari Myths episode, your episode 13 of the Kinbaku Nomicon. So what okay. do you think today are some of the most pervasive or persistent or troublesome myths that still exist in Western minds about Japanese world bondage?
2: By far, the, the most pervasive myth is the myth of tradition. And it's probably the most disempowering myth out there. Um, because calling something traditional doesn't help us understand the activity at all.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, if if we think about tradition as kind of the practices and customs that a group of people do over time because they value that activity and they value, like, doing them over and over again, then there is so much in, in rope bondage that can be considered traditional, something that has gone back. the very first days as you know the style of rope bondage kind of became you know kind of erotic SM bondage you know that we're doing today but normally when I hear people talk about you know traditional it's usually used as kind of a shorthand as something that's being exclusively Japanese particularly anything that comes from the old days so that's kimonos bamboo kind of the Cloth hand towels are used as gags, tatami mats, old-style houses, right? And these are all part of the activity. They're a super popular part and a major part of kind of the imagery, right, and popular tropes in this activity. But it's also just one thing within it. For example, things like sailor suits have been around since almost day one, Mm -hmm. right? Western clothing has been around since day one. Cotton rope has been around since day one. Um, Vinyl cord, chain, cloth cords from Japanese clothing, tying people to Western-style chairs, doing bondage in Western-style rooms. Um, Particularly like metal cages and collars and ball gags. Using like tying somebody with like restraining them with cuffs and then tying those cuffs into, into the rest of the bondage has been around since the 1950s. But I think when people kind of, they, they look at the pictures and stuff, and they, it's easy to equate, right, the kimonos and the undergarments and the settings. It's, well, that's Japanese bondage. But if you internalize that, like, that's Japanese bondage, then anything that doesn't fit that image can easily become, well, less traditional mm-hmm. or not traditional. It's now fusion it's borrowed, right? And so in that sense, it becomes less authentic, right? And so then you get into the purists, right? Oh, my purists, that's all the Japanese stuff. But the practice itself is a hodgepodge and a mess of all kinds of things. And so I hear from time to time when people feel bad that they might want to use cotton rope or they might want to do something that isn't seen as you know, traditional shibari, and I just... I just I want to like saying like no no you're you're okay doing those things because <laughs> they've so much of it is, has been there for so long and has mm. been a living part of the activity.
1: I think anyone who's been in the rope community for a while has encountered at least one person and sadly it's often a white male who has told them, Oh, I know the true way of Shibari because I've been in Tokyo two weeks and I've learned from the grandmaster and thus <laughs> You must listen to me because I will tell you what Rope is really about. And I guess you must take a certain pleasure in telling that person, actually.
2: Oh, it's, it's not so much a pleasure because I'm, I'm thinking about the people who are listening who don't have alternate ways of, of confirming things and, and hearing them. And so it's more like, I think, you know, I just want that more access to be available to people, mm. you know,
0: Okay that's super interesting. And and the influences having listened to the podcast the influences go both ways, right? So it's not just that Japanese rope bondage has influenced western bondage, it's also the other way. And you had um another super episode which was 19 which is an exploration of western bondage in Japanese SM which was uh-huh. like an unexpected thing for me to to hear. Um so how how does western rope well, Western bondage, influenced the Japanese
2: scene? Um, okay, when... I think it's kind of important to remember when we think about like Japanese bondage, is that when this activity first got off the ground, Japan was a fully modern industrial country and society. They had been engaged with the world for 100 years at that point. They knew about all bondage around the world at that point. And they liked practically everything, and they did everything, like fetish wear, leather outfits, complicated contraptions, um, like you name it, like floggers, whips, stuff like that, all of this stuff is there in the scene, and rope bondage is one piece of it, right? And particularly pursuing rope as kind of this rope fetish is, again, a piece within that, but it's all within this larger realm of you know fetish and s m and like for instance, there were old style restraints that were used, which were like wooden handcuffs and stocks, it would be around the neck, mm-hmm. wrists, or ankles right oh yes, and that that got mostly dropped, say you do kind of used them for some of his works, and occasionally I'll see one, but really, it's pretty much mostly been faded out in favor of cuffs and collars, mm-hmm. right, and kind of the leather type. And cages. There was an old style Japanese cage, which is wooden, and there were more kind of like cross hatched style Mm
3: -hmm.
2: cages. Those have been pretty much practically completely replaced by the metal bars, right? The parallel metal bars. And you see both of these in Japanese play and Japanese SM products and rope bondage products and stuff like that. And that particular Japanese approach to it is really kind of faded out.
0: You know how we have this very traditional idea of mm-hmm. Japanese work bondage. Does it the same the other way around? Or have the Japanese, to some extent, adopted this model of, okay, we're the
2: originators of rope? Two kind of parts of that. One, I hear a lot of people talk about how they identify shibari as kind of a particularly characteristic, if not unique, product of kind of the Japanese as some subculture. Right? It's kind of their thing, they that they've contributed kind of to the, the world of um Shibari. But as far as in purists, I don't really hear about purists for Western bondage. What I do hear are people who are really kind of themselves obsessive about doing some types of Western bondage, right? And trying to as closely as they can reproduce or emulate or do. Western bondage, like the and distress bondage, for example. Mm-hmm. So I hear that, and I hear about their complaints about how difficult they have finding some types of nylon or, you know, <laughs> like hose and stuff. So, I mean, I don't necessarily hear about purism, but I, I do hear some strong opinions about, like, what they're trying to do.
1: That's very interesting. Um, I have a, a bit of a broader scope question which is why do you think japan is so big into sm for a country that's not that big not that big of a population they seem to produce a large amount of the sm material nowadays why is there such a strong attraction to sm why is there such a strong industry of sm in japan do you think
2: uh, not really quite sure how to answer that, or if I even know if I'm, like, the right person to answer that, I know that the idea of SM is tied pretty strongly to um, bondage itself, Mm -hmm. Um, but, like, the dynamics of how the industry kind of got off the ground and started producing, I really don't know too much of that details, other than the fact that in the post-war period, there was, like, a really big desire for entertainment, escapist. You know, of course, there were people interested in bondage. And so it was like a a boom of creating a lot of SM entertainment Hmm. at that time. So I don't know if that was the start of it or if it got off the ground at some later time. And of course, you know, interest in Japanese bondage and such has boomed around the world. and There's a lot of interest in that. So I wonder if that's also a part of how much we see because of the interest as well.
1: That would make sense. And I guess we tend to see Japanese culture as a very work-hard, play-hard kind of culture, so I guess that would be part Uh of the play-hard bit.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So
1: moving away from Japan for a a second, Fabiola, and going back to uh, Mm -hmm. Los Angeles where you live, uh, you are a founding member of something called the Devil's Mask Society. Uh, Mm -hmm. What is that?
2: (laughs) The Devil Mask Society was originally just a name for a group of friends who got together um, and kind of used it collectively. Um, But like over the years, it's kind of grown to become its own thing. Um, It kind of started out when my boyfriend, Demon Six, and I were kind of invited to become a start of this other project, which was you know, a rope bonded school in Los Angeles, and I was asked to be kind of the educational coordinator for it. And so I had this idea about how to, like, teach a class that I've been playing around with as as part of this long-term project, and that was to take a small group of people and bring them up to, like, the basic fundamentals of the activity, And once they have those basic fundamentals, they can then go out and do their own thing, right? Mm -hmm. And build their own styles and and follow their own, um, like, interests. And then you do that with another group and then another group. And so there would be an ever-widening pool of people who have the same kind of fundamentals and can talk to each other and there would always be somebody to talk to so that no one can control – access to what people learn and therefore no one can kind of tell other people what to do. And so also like if one person who's teaching something happens to go down or stop doing another person or group of people can then pop up and kind of do it too, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: you know, as cells, right? As cells do.
1: Decentralized Um, view of power.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was a way to get it to spread and to grow you know, around around the area. Mm. And so Demon Six um, got some people together, um, met them or knew them, and so we were going to try to test run this um, idea to see how it would work. So every Thursday we got together, like, once a month, and he and I would, like, show something, and we'd work through the process, and after about a yearish or so, you know, we kind of gone through that process, and we all started just to stick together. So all of us started contributing things in for each other. And, you know, we, we kind of picked up that name, Devil Mess Society, just, you know, to call ourselves. And um, But none of us really had, well, most of us never really had an interest in pursuing it and, like, building it more than that. Except for one couple who really took on that job of, like, building it into something to where it's actually where it is today. You know, because most of us have our own separate interests, and we kind of pursue our own interests.
1: Of course. And is that something yeah, you're been... still uh, involved in today?
2: Um, I've been kind of fading away for the past while, and I really haven't had much involvement in the past year. So.
0: <laughs> I'm super jealous of their rope bottoming. Um, I don't know. Would you call it a course or their experience, like the – um. Uh, the curriculum that they built, it just looks amazing.
2: Yeah, they, they have done a great job, you know, kind of setting up a lot of different things and really kind of pursuing that.
0: And what's the LA rope scene like? So so we do some touristing episodes. I have been to LA a few times, but I've not been there as a rope tourist at this point. So if someone was coming to LA, what, what would they check out if they were interested in um, rope bondage?
2: Uh, there, there's so much in Los Angeles, and just like the whole kind of Southern California area, that I, I don't even know where to start, other than to find out like what event happens to be going on on the day or days that you happen to be in town, right? Because I mean, there's different clubs, there are different groups that hold different types of events, different smaller groups, munches, oh, um, all kinds of things.
0: So yeah,
2: What's your I, personal favorite? What do you like going to? Uh, I'm not a social person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been to a few clubs occasionally and a few things friends have done. Um, but, yeah, I, I get into a group of people and I just kind of don't talk and, and interact very much. So I kind of just do private play more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. um, Super.
1: That's all from us today at The Rope Podcast.
0: Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast form. So iTunes, Stitcher and so on. And come find us on our FetLife page, Rope Podcast.
1: You can also find us easily at ropepodcast.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon so we can produce many new episodes just like this one. We also love questions from listeners. So drop us a message on FET and we'll try to answer you in an upcoming episode.
0: Thanks for listening. And
1: have fun tying.